Good evening. It's good to be back here at White Oak, and uh, I, I'm thankful that uh, you did allow me back after this morning. If you would, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to be spending most of our time this evening in the third and fourth chapters. In Ecclesiastes, we find the question raised, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is the question the preacher asks in chapter 1 and verse 3. And notice that key phrase, under the sun. That is, what profit is there in life when viewed from a merely earthly perspective? That is, what value is there in our labor when we fail to consider God's will in life? We know the answer given by the preacher. In verse 2, he has already given it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. In verse 14, he'll repeat this sentiment. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. How did he reach this conclusion? Well, he reached it first based upon personal experience. If uh, we had the opportunity to study the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes tonight, we would see that uh, in chapters 1 and 2, he details his personal experience seeking out the meaning of life from the earthly perspective. We would have seen the... Vanity of earthly wisdom, the vanity of self-indulgence, the vanity of toil without considering God's will. But he also reached this conclusion based on personal observation. He begins these personal observations in chapter 3 and they continue through chapter 6. And so if we had studied the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, we would have examined the personal experiences of the preacher. Tonight, though, we are going to begin to note his observations, in which he also shares his wisdom for living under the sun. And his conclusion that life under the sun was vanity was partly reached by observing the inexplicable purpose of God. He noted that all things serve God's divine purpose. Notice, uh, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, he noted, everything, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He continues in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. He noted in verse 11 that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then in verse 14, he said, I perceived 
that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. All things serve God's divine purpose, and yet man is unable to find out God's purpose. God has put it in man to search out this purpose. Notice verse, verses 9 through first part of verse 11. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But notice the next part of that verse. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, why does God act this way? The preacher asks. He says in verse 14, God has done it so that people fear before Him. In other words, He's done it so that they will reverence God and therefore seek to please Him. Notice Acts 17, 26 and 27. We remember that this is Paul's sermon uh, at Mars Hill or the Areopagus. He has made from man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. God has made man an inquisitive creature. He has also made life such that we are always seeking for something better or for some purpose. And hopefully we will keep seeking until we find Him. When I say, of course, that we cannot um, find out God's purpose, I don't think that the preacher is suggesting that God has not made known some part of His purpose to us, but there is certainly a great deal that we do not understand about what God does. That's because He is God and, well, we are us, and we are simply unable to understand it. Notice the preacher's conclusion. There is nothing better than, again, this is from the earthly perspective, there is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, according to verse 12. To eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, verse 13. But notice this, notice this. He is he's not suggesting hedonism. Notice the end of verse 13. He says, this is God's gift to man. And so one must be in favor with God if we are to enjoy our toil, if we are to take, take pleasure in what, uh, in what we have. We have to be in favor with God because we know that God is going to require an account of our actions. Notice Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Also, chapter 12 and verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Without revelation, we cannot discern God's purpose. Without His blessing, we cannot enjoy the good of our labor. And so any effort to live without God can only be vanity as we will find His purposes inexplicable. 
The preacher's conclusion about the vanity of life was also reinforced by observing the injustice and oppression of men. Let's see what the preacher saw. Let's go to chapter 3 and verse 16. He saw wickedness in the place of justice. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. He saw power on the side of the oppressor with no comfort for the oppressed. Notice verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And this prompted the preacher to think that the dead were better than the living and that even better were those who had never lived. Verses 2 and 3, And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We've seen what the preacher saw. Now we're going to see what the preacher reasoned in his heart. He reasoned that God will judge the righteous and the dead. Notice verse 17 of chapter 3. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. But notice that last part. There is a time for every matter and for every work. I believe what the preacher is pointing out is that God will somehow use injustice and wickedness in carrying out his purpose. We think of how in the uh, latter part uh, of Israel's history in the uh, during the divided kingdom and during the time of the major and minor prophets, how God used wicked and evil Assyria and Babylon to discipline Israel. He also used some of those ungodly leaders to eventually bring back the remnant to the promised land so that the promise of the Messiah could be fulfilled. God allows injustice to test the sons of men. Notice verses 18 through 21 of chapter 3. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. God allows injustice to test the sons of men so that uh, to help them see that they are like beasts in that they will die and their bodies return to dust. At the same time, they are also different from beast, and that their spirit returns to God who gave it. Let's go over to Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. We've seen what the preacher saw. We've seen what the preacher reasoned in his heart. And now we see what the preacher concluded. Once again, he concluded the value of rejoicing in one's own works. Chapter 3 and verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. Because this is what God allots him, not what may happen on earth after what he is gone. Notice the last part of that verse. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? 
God has not allotted us to see what is going to happen on this earth after we leave. In the remaining part of this section of Ecclesiastes in chapters 3 and 4, we find the preacher making various comments which may be summarized as follows. He speaks of the vanity of skillful but selfish work. He notes that it can breed envy in others. He saw how skillful work causes one to be envied by his neighbor. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. While it is foolish to fold one's own hands and do nothing, and we, we know Scripture teaches us that, in fact, it is foolish and sinful to be lazy and slothful. At the same time, acquiring too much is not worth the effort, for it really does not satisfy. Notice verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What is best is to have little with quietness and contentment. Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. I am also reminded of Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. This is the prayer of Agur. He says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The preacher notes the vanity of skillful but selfish work, especially if one is all alone. The preacher saw one who had no companion, neither son nor brother, in verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is a man who doesn't even have a family member to leave his wealth to when he passes, and yet he spends all of his time working, all of his time laying up riches that he can't necessarily enjoy. He is never satisfied. He can't be satisfied. Notice chapter 5 and verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This man who has no companion and yet continues to work and lay up riches for himself and only for himself, his mortal self. He doesn't think for whom he is laboring. Notice chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. This is a personal experience of Solomon that he's recording. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my, and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And the preacher, if he is indeed Solomon, which I think he is, the preacher 
had good reason to be concerned about this because if we remember the history of uh, the time after Solomon had passed from this life, we remember that it was his foolish son Rehoboam who took his place uh, immediately before the kingdom was divided. And so he truly did leave his, his estate to one who was foolish. It is much better, the preacher says, to have friends Notice verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It is much better to have friends who can help each other in their labor, who can help each other when they fall, who can help each other withstand forces of opposition. When I read verse verse eleven again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can warm keep? How can one keep warm alone? I'm reminded of a, a missionary I once knew in East Africa who, prior to his work as a missionary and a preacher, had uh, served in our armed forces and. At one point, he had been deployed in South Korea there on the DMZ. And he said, when it's, uh, when it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside, uh, you'll get in a sleeping bag in the, back of a dumping in the back of a dump truck with another man to stay warm. And uh, so that, that's what that verse think, makes me think of. It's better to have friends, the preacher says, and... Finally, he says that popularity, he notes that popularity is a fleeting thing. Notice verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. It's better to be a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Why is this? Because let's notice what he says in verses 14 through 16. He went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Despite rising from, from poverty and prison to become king, the people will eventually prefer another much younger than he. Popularity and fame are fleeting. They cannot be relied upon. In conclusion, the preacher's observations about the vanity of life, along with wisdom for living under the sun, will continue in succeeding chapters. We don't have time to go into those this evening, but I encourage you to read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you have before, but I know that every time that I read it, um, I know that every time I read it, I uh, learn something new. But this evening we've seen in this study why the preacher reached the conclusions he did about the vanity of life. He noted the inexplicable purposes of God. He noted the injustice and oppression of men. And he saw the vanity of skillful but selfish toil. Notice the wisdom he offers for living under the sun. It's best to rejoice, to do good, and to enjoy the good of one's labor, realizing that this is a gift of God to those who please him. He also encouraged us to appreciate the value of friends who can help us in time of labor and of need. As Christians today, we may be perplexed at times concerning the workings of God, 
God has made, God has revealed a considerable amount of his purpose to us in scripture, but he has often left out the finer details. That's okay. We do not deserve those. We are not entitled to those. But we do have this. We have the assurance that all things work for good for them who love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8 and verse 28. We have the family of God to help us in our labor and in our time of need. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And of course, there is no greater friend than the one who is the ultimate end of all God's purposes in this world, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, verses 8 through 10, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice what the Hebrew author says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The question for you this evening is, are you a friend of Jesus? Remember then what he said. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15 and verse 14. Let Jesus be your friend by obeying his will. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He said, they ought, he said, if we want to be obedient to him, we have to be baptized. But before we get to baptism, let's, let's make sure that we are ready. How do we do that? We hear the word of God. Hearing that word of God creates faith, according to Romans 10 and verse 17. We believe it. That belief has to be so strong that we are willing to change our mind in such a way that it leads to a change of action called repentance. Luke 13 verse 3 says that if we do not repent, we shall likewise perish. Our belief has to be strong enough that we will confess that faith before others. Having done so, then we are ready to be baptized in water for the remission of our sins. And then we live faithfully. Perhaps you've done those things, but you have not lived faithfully. You have stopped obeying Christ you have stopped being his friend he's ready to accept you again confess your sin as publicly or privately as need be repent of it he's ready to take you back whatever need you may have this evening please let it be known as we stand and as we sing